question for you. What is a bicycle for? I'll take answers on this. What is a bicycle for? All right, what did you say, John? People is too lazy. All right. Transportation. Exercise. All right. Recreation. Competition. All right. So you've kind of noted some various possibilities in terms of you know, how a bike can be enjoyed and employed, but its basic purpose, its basic ends, is getting you from point A to B. And along the way, you can enjoy, enjoy other things, the, the recreation of it, the competition of it. But the point is getting you somewhere, getting you to your destination. I, I've been regularly asking this question to our youth and youth group. Um, it seems like a rather obvious question until you put your, yourself in the shoes of someone in an unreached tribe, or perhaps a thousand years ago. Imagine you've never seen or heard of bicycles before. But all of a sudden, you come across one. A strange frame of metal with some twisted ring stuck in the sand. Now, from our understanding, we understand it's a bike, but a damaged bike. But even someone who has no acquaintance with bikes at all, with enough rational ingenuity, you might discover its purpose. Or, as some are apt to do, you might just turn it into a flower holder. <laughs> Seriously, though, with some time, you could probably figure it out and maybe even try to get it working. If you had the manufacturer's instructional manual on how it's supposed to operate. A more important question now, and you don't need to respond to this one. What are humans for? Now, there's a bit of a presumption here, even in asking this question. Because I'm assuming humans do have a purpose behind their existence, just like a bike has a purpose. If human beings are accidents, if there is no God, then there is no purpose. Now, if you look at ourselves, <clears throat> that just seems very unlikely. Yes, we're not quite right, just like that bike in the sand, but no one thinks the bicycle stumbled into existence accidentally. And it'd be silly for us to think we stumbled into existence accidentally. So if we're no accidents, what are humans for? Philosophers have munched on that question for generations. We can make some heads or tails regarding what we're all about just by examining ourselves, our natures as human beings. Anyone can do that. But our understanding would be more certain and more accurate if we had the manufacturer's manual. Now getting to the point, 
the Bible is just this. Even if it is also more than this. The Bible tells us just what our Creator meant to do when He created us. And through Scripture, God is offering us a quantum leap in our understanding of who we are and what we are for. If, if, we'll accept it. The cultural conflict we're experiencing right now boils down to a very basic dispute. Does God tell us who we are and what we are for? Or does every individual determine their own identity and purpose? Does every individual determine for themselves what it means to be a human being? This is the root of the dispute. And connected to it, sprouting above the surface, are the issues of human gender and sexuality. If we determine our own purpose, our own end, then gender and sexuality can be whatever we want it to be. If God determines our purpose, our end, then we can only flourish, we can only get ourselves right if we align ourselves to that end. Otherwise, we're bicycles pretending to be flower pots. So what does God say? Well, let's begin in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. There the word of the Lord says, And God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we ask, what are humans for? The answer that Genesis offers us is that humans are for image-bearing. And we could explore that very deeply, but the basic idea is this, is that we are here as God's representatives to represent his rule and reign, to manifest his glory in the creation as we tend to it, as his governors, God being the king of kings. Now, if that was it, if that's all we knew, if it just said, okay, mankind, human beings are made in God's image, that would leave quite a bit undefined. But that's not all that God tells us here. He tells us not only what we are, but also how we manifest that image bearing. And what God says is that his image is manifested specifically in two genders, male and female, and only two genders. And this isn't something that's just an Old Testament thing. This is something that Jesus himself 
confirms in the Gospel of Matthew. Looking back to Genesis in Matthew 19, verses 4-6. through He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God created human beings in his image as male and female. It's not only men who represent God's image. It's not only women who represent God's image. It's both of them together. And especially as they've been ordered to be joined together in sexual union, in marriage, to procreate. Now this relationality between them is a reflection of God's own relationality because while God is one, we also know that he is three in person. And this is how we can say that God is love because he is three in person. And they have, the three persons of the Trinity have loved one another throughout all eternity. And out of the abundance of that love, all of creation was brought into existence. And so out of the love between a man and a woman, new image bearers are brought into existence. And so notice how that union between male and female is ordered unto the increase of God's glory and that more and more image bearers are produced. So the natural, the biological, is ordered unto that end of increasing God's glory in the creation. Now, this is what all marriages are ordered unto. That Now, of course, there's some marriages where they're not able to have children because of reasons of health. And there's some marriages that never bring forth children because of priorities of the kingdom, and we'll get into that later. But the idea is that this is fundamental to the relationship between men and women. This is fundamental to the purpose of sex. Sex is pleasurable, just like riding the bike down the street is pleasurable. It's, you, know, you can compete, you can have recreation and stuff, but the purpose is getting to the destination. And that is the purpose of sex. The purpose of sex is procreation. And this is the confusion that we've experienced today. The confusion we've experienced today is that sex has been stripped of its purpose. We live in a society that defies any notion that gender or sex would have any purpose. It's contended that it's just simply there for our pleasure, to bend to our will. And so, the only thing that would then matter would be consent. And that's why we see consent as being the defining issue of sexual ethics today. Not, does it work towards the end of what God created it for? Now, when, you know, as we 
talk about this issue of sex and its purpose and sexual ethics, you'd probably expect that you know, I might turn to some passages from Deuteronomy, Leviticus, you know, go across Paul's letters, you know, picking out these specific commands in which you know, sexual acts that fall out of the male-female sexual union in marriage are condemned. But I want to tell you this morning that there's no need to do that. It's enough to know what we are supposed to do, to know what we are for. Because when we know what we are for, when we understand the end that we were created for and what we are supposed to do, we understand that we shouldn't deviate from that purpose. It's like with the story of Jonah. God told Jonah, you're going to go to Nineveh and prophesy there and call them to repentance. God didn't say to Jonah, I'm commanding you not to get on a boat and try to sail across the Mediterranean and escape from me. He didn't need to. Jonah understood that would have been the wrong thing because he would have been running away from the purpose and end that God had specifically for him. And so if we know our end, we know that we ought not to depart from it. Now, I've I've found that there's a really unfortunate tendency for people to view the Bible kind of as a bunch of arbitrary rules, that God just gave all these commands to be a cosmic killjoy. But that's not what it is at all. What we find in God's Word is given to us so that we can flourish. The bike manufacturer gives you the manual so you can understand the bike's function and enjoys to its fullest capacity. This is also what God has done for us. He's given us his word so we can flourish. And to flourish, you need wisdom. You need to know what this life is about. And God's revelation in scripture is that wisdom. And Proverbs tells us this in Proverbs 29.18. It's going to be on the screen, but I invite you to turn there as well. Proverbs 29.18. Proverbs 29.18. This is a good verse to mark out. Truth is, is all of Scripture is a good verse to mark out, but this is a good one. There, Solomon writes, he says, Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. I want you to notice the tie here. There's this connection between revelation and wisdom. And notice that where there is no revelation, where wisdom is ignored, people cast off restraint and they invite chaos into their lives. And if you kind of observe our culture, this is celebrated in our culture, this idea of casting off restraint. 
This is the American notion of freedom, of casting off constraint. Casting off restraint. But the end of that is catastrophic. And the best way I can compare it is this. Is, you know, we have our cars and they can go fast, but you need your brakes. If you do not have your brakes, the car is going to be useless to you. But celebrating sp speed, celebrating the freedom of going as fast as one could possibly go, what many in our culture want to do is cut the brake lines. Throw off the, the wisdom, which is revealed both in nature and also especially in God's word. See, God's wisdom in Scripture has been given to us in order that we might avoid disastrous outcomes. And Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. God's trying to offer His life like a fountain in order that we might not get caught up and stumble and fall. And this is what we see taking place at the very beginning in Eden. First command that God gives to Adam, Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now also recall that the tree of life is in the garden. And God didn't say, don't eat from that tree. Adam was invited to eat of the tree of life, which I think is representing that communion with God. It's not as though there was something actually, I don't, I don't think there was something actually in the fruit itself. It was, it was a symbol. Just in many ways, I think that the table is a symbol of our communion with God. And this is what Adam ultimately ended up losing. But he said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do that, if you try to know good and evil on your own terms, to be wise in your own eyes, you will die. Now the idea here is that as human beings, we are supposed to be trusting in God's design and His wisdom over our own notions of good and evil. So if you want to flourish, if you want to enjoy the goodness of life, then you ought to trust God. So we go back to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3. Some verses that are very familiar to most of us here. Proverbs 3, starting in verse 5, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Notice, this is framed as, this is going to help us flourish as human beings as we trust God. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. 
kind of bringing us back to Eden there. The wisdom of God is a tree of life to us. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you. An ornament to grace your neck. The thing that I love about these verses is that how it shows how the wisdom of God has gone into everything in life. It's not as though you become a Christian and you go to God's Word just to get wisdom about spiritual things. You get, go to Scripture to get wisdom about everything. Because God has ordered all of creation, all of nature, all of the universe unto specific ends and purposes. We fail to flourish because we have trusted in ourselves rather than in God. We believe the lie of the serpent. Eve questioned the serpent at first since God had said not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to not throw off restraint. But the serpent tells her in Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You see, Adam and Eve fell away from God because they decided they wanted to pursue their own wisdom. They wanted to be wise in their own eyes. And we, their children, have followed in their footsteps. Paul, reflecting on the entire state of humanity in his letter to the Romans, in the first chapter, explains how the outcome of this ties in directly to these issues of gender and sexuality. In Romans 1, verses 21 through 28, He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, we all thought we were going to make ourselves wise, but instead we became foolish. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Notice God's punishment here. He didn't inflict anything on us from the outside. His punishment was to give us over to ourselves. We are the criminals. We are the ones who have harmed ourselves. And specifically, this has manifested itself in sexual immorality. And this would include all kinds of sexual immorality. But iconically, Paul says that this especially manifests itself as we've turned inward 
in our sexual relationships by pursuing sexual relationships with people of the same sex. Continuing on in verse 25, he says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflated with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. You see, the sin of engaging in sexual relations with people of the same sex is reflective of our idolatry because it reflects our self-obsession. The obsession with the self that we would pursue someone of the same sex as us. This is what God is, has given us over to as we've gone our own way. This is the outcome of humanity deifying itself, of, of, of making human desire our highest end, of just doing whatever we want to do. And so the consequence is that we are ruled by endless desire. And being ruled by endless desire, we are subject to endless mutation. Because we've thrown off all order, we've thrown off all restraint. And so we know not which way we ought to go. And so we're just endlessly changing. We never find any kind of rest. Medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, a very eminent theologian, wrote the Summa, Summa Theologica. It's like five volumes. It's huge. It says this about human beings. He says, That in which a man rests as in his last end is master of his affections, since he takes therefrom, from, therefrom his entire rule of life. Now this is both, this is going to have a positive side and this could have a negative because if we put, if we recognize God as our end, then that will order all of our life correctly as that's taken as our rule. And this is what we see in the very beginning. If we are to be God's image bearers, we need to be in relationship with him. If the moon is blocked from the sun, it cannot reflect its light. And the same is true for us. We must be in relationship with God. And so that's the ultimate end that we are created for. And as we are in relationship with God, we reflect his glory. But as we've removed that end, as, we, as we've designed ends for ourselves, we are likewise ruled by those things. We can be ruled by God or we can be ruled by endless desire. And this is what has happened in Western society, and especially in America. We've departed from God as our end, made ends of ourselves. And this explains the violent reaction that Christians receive when we say we disagree with that. We can't, it's not just simply a matter of like, okay, well, we can all just agree to disagree. There's, there's outrage, because this appears to be a great crime in the eyes of our society. Because we are defying the God of the self. 
in an article that was just published in the past week, Carl Truman, he's a theology professor at Grove City College, wrote this in an article entitled Blasphemy Then and Now. He says, old-style blasphemy involves desecrating God because it was God who was sacred. Today's blasphemy involves suggesting that man is not all-powerful, that he cannot create himself in any way he chooses, that he's subject to limits beyond his choice and beyond his control. Now, we will protest against this. We'll insist that we can have our own way, but that verse that Dennis read earlier remains. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If you step back and you look at what's going on in our population, we can see that trying to embrace the pursuit of any end is not doing us any good. A few months ago, there was a study released by the CDC reporting on mental health among adolescents. And pretty much across the board, it's not good. But they also know, and this is a quote from an article from uh, WBUR. They note from this study, it says, mental health among LGBTQ youth appears to be worsening faster than the national average. Close to 70% of LGBTQ teens experienced persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness in the last year, the survey found. In a study done in 2022 by the Trevor Project, which is for the LGBTQ lifestyle, they noted an upward trend in the past three years in suicidal ideation among these kids. You see, society thinks that acceptance leads to happiness, and, and they want to assign all blame of poor mental health to a lack of acceptance. But let's not have short-term memory loss here, or long-term, or long-term memory loss here. Were we seeing these rates of depression and anxiety in generations past? They would claim that all the percentages of LGBTQ persons has been stable and that everyone was just closeted in the past. If that were so, would we not expect that depression and suicide would have been through the roof in the past? Things have only gotten worse even since I was a kid, which wasn't that all that, that long ago. Things should have been horrific if if that was the case, and the only solution was just accept, accept, accept. You see, there's there's a broader problem of of trying to root our identity in gender and sexuality. It's not in accordance with God's design. Even as male and female, even as in the union of man and wife in marriage. It's not God's design that we would root our identity in those things. These are just attributes of being human. And they do have their purpose and function and their good, but they are not meant to bear the totality of who you are. If we are God's image bearers, 
As I stated earlier, we've been called to be in communion with him. And it's on that basis that we gain our identity. It's an identity that's drawn from outside of ourselves. It must be God that we draw our identity from. Because if it's from any other thing, because we, we can draw our identity from outside things, and some people try to do that from money, job, fame, all those things. People try to draw identity from that. What ends up happening is, is they're malnourished. And we cannot root our identity in ourselves because what we will do is cannibalize ourselves. We will eat ourselves alive. That's literally what we're seeing happening in our society. It's people mutilating themselves, cutting themselves apart in the search of identity. This is the American spirit. This restlessness, this rootlessness, this never-enoughness. Leading cultural icons have vocalized this. I'm not sure exactly when she said this, but Madonna in an article in Vogue magazine is quoted as saying this, and this comes from Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. She says this, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That has always pushed me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I, I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. And I guess it never will. How depressing is that? Someone who has reached the heights of fame such that I do not need to give you her last name. You can just say Madonna, and you, I, you know who I'm talking about. And she's experienced this never-ending slavery to always having to change, always trying to do something more. We've put ourselves this burden of trying to make ourselves special because we do not rest in God and accept the identity he offers us as image bearers. Now, God knows we've gone astray, that we've lost our footing, that we've forgotten who we are. And so, God has done something about it. God reminded us who we are by sending his Son to us. Now, there's a lot that Jesus accomplished, and I can't cover it all right now. But right now, there's one thing that you need to understand. In becoming human, Jesus was showing us two things at the exact same time. He was showing who God is, and he was showing us who we were supposed to be. And the two are inextricably tied together because as human beings, we, like Jesus, are supposed to be revealing who God is. That's our created purpose. The writer of the letter to Hebrews testifies to this twofold reality. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on and talks about how he took on human flesh to be just like us. And yet, he is the perfect image of the Father. He is the radiance of, the God, of God's glory, the exact representation. He is the image par excellence. A fuller even image than even we could ever be. But we are meant to follow after him. And Paul says the same about Jesus, but he adds also something very interesting in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 16. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Notice there, what Paul's saying. Not only have all things been created through the Son, but all things have been created for Him. So what are we for? Our purpose, our end, brings us to Jesus. Looking to sexual sin, Paul says it's wrong not because it's just a killjoy and you shouldn't have too much pleasure in this life and stuff. It's not that. He says, but because our bodies are for the Lord. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 13. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The Lord is good for the body. It takes you back into Proverbs. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The reason why sexual sin is a sin against a person's own body is because we're de- deviating from our created purpose, which is bound up It's bound up in our natures as male and female and the way that we are to sexually relate to one another. There is an unfortunate drift, I think, um, very much among Christian circles where we focus so much on the spiritual that we do not attend to God's very intent purpose that he created us to be physical beings. He created us to be creatures. And that our purpose is bound up with us, our, our biological being. But we gain something more as we come to Christ. Our belonging to Jesus, our identity as a child of God, transcends all other markers of identity. In Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, I've been quoting this verse a lot lately, so you know it. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when we come to Jesus, things do 
change. Jesus does represent a new chapter in humanity. And there's something otherworldly about this, yes, because it is a new creation that he's about. But there will be continuity along with discontinuity. But we do see that there is discontinuity in what is to come. In Matthew 22:30, Jesus, in answering a challenging question from the religious leaders about marriage, says that the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So we see the mandate of Genesis of physical procreation will come to an end. And this is a good reminder to us that clearly marriage is not salvation. And you would know that if, if, if you pay attention to the details because Jesus was single. Jesus never got married. He was fully human. He didn't have to be, get married to be fu- fully human. He didn't have to have sex to be fully human. And the Apostle Paul commends singleness, saying it's better if you can remain single than getting married. And so if someone's struggling with homosexual desires, the goal for them is not marriage. Redemption doesn't look like them getting married to somebody. Absolutely not. I just want to say as an aside here, some people may struggle with that temptation their whole life. All of us here have sins we struggle with our whole lives. Struggling is not the problem. Facing temptation is not the problem. Jesus faced all sorts of temptation. It's giving in. It's surrendering to sin. That's what all Christians, all people are called to turn, turn away from. Marriage is not all important because in Christ, the kingdom takes on a higher priority than the original mandate to be physically fruitful and multiply because we have a new birth. You're talking about being born again. We have a new way of procreation and it's not by man and woman coming together. It's brought about through the work of the Spirit and the Spirit works through the body of Christ, through the people of God. And this is how God gains His children. At the same time, too, though, we don't do away with marriage. The natural order remains. We live in this in-between. We live in between the ages. We have the age of Adam. We have the age of the church. And the age of new creation is to come. And so both remain. We recognize both realities. The ethicist Oliver O'Donovan an evangelical Christian, reminds us of this reality. In his book, Resurrection and Moral Order, he says, man's life on earth is important to God. He has given it its order. It matters that it should conform to the order he has given it. Once we have grasped that, we can understand, too, how this order requires of us both the denial of all that threatens to become disordered and a progress towards a life which goes beyond this order without negating it. He's talking about what Jesus is offering us of what is to come. In the resurrection of Christ, creation is restored and the kingdom of God dawns. Ethics, which starts from this point, may sometimes emphasize the newness, saying it's not all about getting married. Sometimes the primitiveness of the order that is there affirms. Sex is only 
for the marriage union. But it will not be tempted to overthrow or deny either in the name of the other. So what do we take away from all of this? What we take away from it is that all of us, male and female, those who struggle with homosexual temptation, those who have heterosexual desires, all of us are called to be sexually faithful. We are to live faithful lives in accordance with God's order, and design. Again, not just because, although that that would be enough because God is God, but it's not just because. It's because we will flourish if we are faithful, if we live in harmony with the way in which God has designed us to operate. There's nothing arbitrary here. Now, what about those who have been unfaithful? What about those who have engaged in the homosexual lifestyle? What about those who have um, torn apart their bodies, done all kinds of things in order to try to change their genders? Is there any hope for the unfaithful? Paul says there is just as there is hope for all of us who have been unfaithful. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11, through 11, he says this, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is hope, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. If you'll turn to God, if you'll repent. Now we're under this pressure to accept people. And by accept was usually typically meant as affirm people, to say two thumbs up to the decisions that people make when it comes to their gender, when it comes to their sexuality. We must not give in to that pressure because we have to keep this reality in mind. That not only is a person's earthly flourishing at stake, their salvation is at stake. And we go again back to the book of Proverbs, which tells us, Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If we're truly to befriend someone, sometimes we have to say things that will hurt. Only an enemy always tells you what you want to hear. The Christian is called to love, and so yes, we will speak the truth. And we're trying to work this out. There are some basic things that we have to navigate. You know, if someone says they want to change their name, and maybe usually it's a typically female name, can we honor them by calling them by the name they choose? Sure. 
We do that with last names, too. People can call themselves really whatever they want to. But what they're not at liberty to do is to change their gender. I know this is challenging for some of you because you work in spheres where you're supposed to comply and call people by the pronouns that they choose to use. I want to tell you, you shouldn't go along with that. As your pastor, I'll work with you in trying to figure out how you navigate that situation. But just simply, I don't think you should go along with that. I also don't think you should go to weddings that would suggest that two people of the same gender can be married, same-sex marriage. It's not a thing. God's word says so. And when we go to a marriage ceremony, when we go to a wedding, we're testifying to the reality of that union. Sometimes we just think it's like going to a graduation or something. It's not. It's not what happens when you go to a wedding ceremony. You're testifying that we are recognizing this as a marriage union and we will hold these people to that covenant. And you cannot do that because it is not a marriage covenant. It may be some sort of agreement, but it's not a marriage covenant. Now, as as we live alongside people who disagree with us vehemently on this, um, we should be kind. We should not engage in slurring. We should not show contempt towards people. I've heard Christians speak of others in slurs and in a hateful sort of way. And that's not justified. That's not the way of Jesus Christ. What we're called to do is to love others by saying, I want to be in your life. I'm glad to be your friend, but I'm not going to support you harming yourself or others because I love you. And, I, I, and there can be, be pressure back against this, against it, again, to just accept. But that pressure just to accept, I think, can be manipulative. You say, you have to accept, otherwise people are going to harm themselves, maybe even kill themselves. Well, if someone had a heroin addiction, how would we respond if they said, if you don't accept my heroin addiction, I'll hurt myself? We'd say, that's not fair. Because I genuinely believe by taking that drug, you are going to be harming yourself, and so I'm not going to accept that. And so, as, genu- as genuine, sincere Christians, we have to say, I can't support that, because I love you. I don't want you to harm yourself. Because we're concerned both about the earthly outcome, they're flourishing now, but also, especially about the eternal outcome. Now, the challenge with all of this is that the dispute runs so much deeper than transgenderism, same-sex relationships, or any other sexual relationship outside of the union of husband and wife. On the surface, it looks like an ethics debate. But at root, it is not. It is a theological debate. It is an inter-religious debate between the religion of God and the religion of man. The battle is, who will be God? 
God's word and the natural order he created clearly deny the myths and fables that have been foisted upon us. And they are myths and fables. Doesn't mean they're not harmless, though. They're just as harmless as the myths and fables of Moloch was harmless, which led parents to feed their children into the fires. There are only two genders, male and female, and these are biologically determined. Sex is for procreation and flourishes to that end by uniting man and woman and marriage. The two become one flesh. But if I will be God, I cannot accept these constraints. I cannot accept any restraints. I must deny all revelation of Scripture and of nature. If I will be God, I must be able to do whatever I will be. I must be able to do whatever I will do. If I will be God, I must be able to tell myself, you will certainly not die, and take what is pleasing to my eye, the way that seems right to me, though it leads to death. If I will be human, I will look to the God who became a man. I will look to the perfect image of the Father, Jesus Christ, the image bearer. I will confess that I am not my own, that I was bought at a price, that I was created through him and for him. I will look and hear him pray at the hour of his death, not my will, but yours be done. And I too will pray, not my will, but yours be done. Let us pray. Dear Father, we come before you humbled this morning because, Father, we recognize that all of us are included in the world that Paul says has turned its back on you. Every single one of us has at one time or another tried to live as God ourselves, trying to do just what is right in our own eyes, Father. Father, we confess the foolishness of that today. And Father, we pray that you would help others to see the foolishness of that. Father, help us to see that you've created us with a purpose, with an end. And that is to be your image bearers. And that you have determined this in very specific ways biologically, Father. And we may not understand all of it completely, Father, but we recognize that your ways are higher than our ways. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us trust in you so that we might flourish, so that we might live in harmony with our nature as human beings. Father, we pray that we, we trust in you 
so that we would be made unto the image of Christ. Help us to have faith in him so that we can be all that you've created us to be. Because we know as things stands, Father, that we're not enough. We can't subsist on identities of our own creation. We need the identity that is offered us in Jesus Christ, being joined to him, becoming your children. Father, as your children, fill us with love and mercy for those that remain confused. Give us mercy to recognize that we've been where they're at. Even if we haven't done the exact same things, we've been where they're at. And give us courage, Father, to stand firm that we will love them and that we will not forsake the truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through 1st and 2nd Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.